Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So when I look around the room at the postures during the meditation practice, I think maybe we need to start guided meditation again. Um, I want to remind you that when you sit, there should be virya, or enthusiasm. Uh, and some of the postures are really slumped over and kind of head to the side. And A lot of what we call the monk's dance, which is this. <laughs> Um, so to be awake, to sit, is to be awake. And it means to be awake to whatever's happening. So if there's tiredness, to be awake to tiredness. So the posture is awake and tiredness is present at the same time. If you're bored, just to be awake to boredom. To be fully awake to boredom. Until it becomes fascinating. Oh, boredom. Let's check this out and see what's going on. Um, And I also encourage you to sit with your eyes open, half open. So the gaze is down towards the floor and the eyelids are soft so that um, you're not tuning out or tuning in. So sometimes when you close your eyes during sitting and then the bell rings... And open your eyes, and it feels like you're coming back again from somewhere. But in this practice, we're not going anywhere. So we're not going inward, and we're also not focused outward. We're just here. And this is going to be the theme of the teachings of the Lotus Sutra today. So um, if uh, you need some attention with your sitting practice, then I encourage you to take every other month, we're now, I'm, I'm now offering a, a whole day on the sitting meditation posture, the anatomy and also the psychology of sitting meditation. So um, the next one's full, it's in May, but we'll do it every other month for the foreseeable future. Until when I look around the room, there's enthusiasm <laughs> during the sitting meditation practice. Yeah. Okay, so... When you're, when you're sitting and the posture is good. There's a sense of ease, and there's a sense of spaciousness, and uh, steadiness. And also, um, uh, a lessening of one's interaction with time. 
and this is what we explored last week in the Lotus Sutra, that time is uh, a construct that every meditator gets to meditate on. That when we're impatient, time goes really slow. And when we're excited, time seems to speed up. Doesn't doesn't go slow enough. Um, and even as we sit here tonight, uh, we can feel all these different layers of time. It's April 26th. It's April 26th, and it's 7.59 p.m., and that's quite believable. Everybody would agree, 7.29, unless you have an atomic clock, which I don't don't have. Um, But even the atomic clock, I think the way they measure time with the atomic clock, which is in Boulder, I went to visit it once, is through decay, which is kind of interesting, too. Uh, They measure time through its passing. And this is what we explored last week. Uh, I asked you to meditate on this sentence, time is passing. And to see if that's true. Is time passing? Or also to explore if time is passing. Or if time is passing. Or if time is passing. Maybe you did this. I hope you I hope you did. And then there's also uh, the body's time. You know, it's evening. Our body is not actually uh, uh, awake in the way maybe it was at 7 a.m. or at 8 a.m. We're digesting the day psychologically and uh, physiologically and so on. And then there's also the timeless aspect of time. Like crying or laughter doesn't seem to happen in time. It's ancient. It's something we all share and isn't really uh, something that occurs just in personal time. And we also need time and spaciousness to cry and to laugh. Um, And then there's another layer of time, which uh, this week was Passover and uh, was also the precept ceremony. And the precept ceremony was so beautiful. Um, we had about 150 people there. Um, the 29 students who graduated from the precepts course um, came into the room uh, after the elders. Anybody notice the elders? With gray hair? Really gray hair? So we couldn't find elders. Because uh, we don't have anyone in our Sangha who's like, there are people with silver hair, but they're not elder elders. Yet. <laughs> um, so we couldn't find elders. So basically, um, Andrea, uh, Sarah, Aaron, who's in BC tonight, and Barzin over there, they, they, they made their hair silver. <laughs> and uh, they were the elders of the community. And then... In the walking meditation, the instruction in walking meditation is to walk so calmly that you don't move the air. So they did a walking meditation. What they did is they they attached balloons to their silver hair so that as they walked through the room, they walked without moving the balloons. So so beautiful to watch these elders uh, doing their walking meditation. And then we chanted, and then people came up and received 
their certificates uh, from uh, a non-elder, uh, my son, actually, and um, and they vowed to uphold the, the precepts. And so that's also a layer of time. Vowing to uphold the precept is contacting that person in us, um, that person in me who's at the Passover Seder and is there every day, uh, that person uh, in all of us who is in a ceremony and who uh, wakes up in it. Most of us are scared of ceremonies because they remind us of the religion we're running away from. But there's also something timeless about ceremonies. Is it connects us to this uh, ancient uh, lineage of ritual that is so absent in our culture. Uh, which is a way of also marking the time. It's interesting. Um, In the Lotus Sutra, the way time is marked is with kalpas, which are glacial ages. And this, for yogis, uh, in the yoga tradition, time is marked with yogas. We're in Kali Yoga right now, which is the last of a phase of yogas. I think Kali Yoga is 84,000 years. And Dvarupa Yoga, which was before Kali Yoga, was like, it's like 630 600 and something years, uh, sorry, 600 and something thousand years long. Um, so, you know, you can count on the Indians to measure time in the strangest ways. <laughs> yeah. um, so, let's jump into the Lotus Sutra. Has, it, has everybody read ahead? Does anybody even have their Lotus Sutra? Because I'm going to read right from it tonight. Um, so, there was a Buddha named Great Universal Wisdom Excellence. And he preached the Lotus Sutra for 8,000 kalpas. You have to picture this, okay? Because this story is going to get a bit psychedelic. (laughs) So there's this Buddha named Great Wisdom Excellence, and he's preaching the Lotus Sutra for 8,000 kalpas. That's 8,000 glacial ages. But you can imagine it's kind of tiring. Yeah. And then he got tired, and he had to take a rest. So then he took a rest for 84,000 kalpas, which is a long time. So he's teaching the Lotus Sutra, right? Great Buddha wisdom excellence. Gets tired, has a rest for 84,000 kalpas. But someone has to keep teaching the Lotus Sutra. Why? Do you remember in the last uh, chapter? Why? Because people don't get it. They don't get it because they're trying to attain something, but they don't realize that yet. But it's okay, because needing to attain something is an important way of getting on the path. We see this in the yoga postures all the time, right? First, you give people like really complicated things to do so that you get their competitive nature going so that they're in the door, right? And then you shut the door and you say, no, 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 it's not that. You know all those pictures we showed you, it has nothing to do with that. Um, And then you lose a few. And then a few, but it's okay, that's okay. Because they'll come back through another door someday. Madonna, or Sting, or something. And then, um, uh, eventually you do like we did in the class just tonight. We worked on pretty much one pose. Tonight, we worked on Dandasana. 
in great detail. And um, the people with the competitive spirit would get frustrated with that. Uh, but then hopefully that sheds over time. So these are all skillful means. So anyways, how is someone going to preach the Lotus Sutra for the 84,000 years that the great Buddha wisdom excellence needs to rest? Well, uh, there are 16 sons of great wisdom excellence. He has 16 sons. Do you notice there's only sons and fathers in the Lotus Sutra? We're going to get to that next chapter. Um, But the 16 sons then start preaching the Lotus Sutra uh, together, they're tag teaming, I think, for 84,000 years. You're picturing this? Okay. Then the Buddha gets up from his rest, which he reveals was a deep form of samadhi, and then he congratulates the 16 sons, and he congratulates them by giving them all predictions. And each son becomes a cosmic principle in the vast uh, cosmology of Buddhism, which we're not going to get into tonight. Um, and then each son gets a name. Okay, And then the last son uh, is revealed to have the name Shakyamuni Buddha. Do you get it? Some of you are asleep. It's a punchline. Okay, So there's the Buddha named Great Wisdom Excellence. Right? He preaches the Lotus Sutra for 8,000 kalpas, goes to sleep for 84,000, has 16 sons who preach the Lotus Sutra. Then he wakes up and he reveals who the sons are, which are all the cosmic principles. And the last son is Shakyamuni Buddha. No other than Shakyamuni Buddha. So this is incredible. What this means is, before Shakyamuni Buddha, the Lotus Sutra was preached for 84,000 kalpas and 8,000 kalpas before that. And there were 16 sons, and there was a father before that. Which means that the Buddha uh, was nothing new. It's a little bit like, imagine that somebody in 600 years, when there is no more nuclear power, one day takes a filament and figures out how to attach electricity to it, and creates a light. And they create a light, and you look into this, and you say, oh, you've just invented light, right? Well, it was invented, you know, by Edison in this past century. And yet, at the same time, nobody invents light. It's always there, and certain conditions come together, and there's an awakening. So this is suggesting that maybe the Buddha did not invent anything. And of course, for those of you who were here last year when we studied, uh, especially with Stephen Batchelor, the Buddha's first sermon about the ancient city, the Buddha says his enlightenment was like finding a path, taking the path, and discovering an ancient city that was once flourishing. In other words, the Buddha continually uh, taught that he never discovered anything new. It's not like Freud who discovered the unconscious. (laughs) Before Freud, there was no unconscious. (laughs) One day, Freud read some dreams and discovered the unconscious. And now we have one. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Also, all the women then were in hysteria, and we don't have that anymore either. Or maybe we're all in hysteria, and so we can't see it. Um, So anyways, this is what happens. So 
this Buddha, great wisdom, excellence, is the Buddha who taught Shakyamuni Buddha. Do you see the transmission going back kalpa after kalpa after kalpa? Um, and then he needs to explain to all of the Sangha uh, how this came to be. And so he uses a parable. And this is the last two pages of this very, very long chapter. And the parable he uses is the parable of the phantom city. Do you catch all this? Yeah. Normally people skip this when I've been hearing um, some of these teachings and also been reading the commentaries, like Thich Nhat Hanh's commentary, for example. They skip all this stuff about time, which is, I think, some of the best meat in the sutra. But anyways, here comes the phantom city. So this is a parable. Suppose there was a stretch of steep, bad road in a remote wasteland with many harmful beasts, a place without water or grass, dreaded by people. A group of countless thousands and ten thousands wanted to pass over this very steep road, but the road was very long and far-stretching, extending 500 yojanas. Andrea, how long is a yojana? The distance an army can walk in a day. The distance an army can travel in a day. 500 yojanas. Andrea is part of, of an art project, can I say that? And their, their plan is to count yojanas by going from home and walking and see how far they can walk in one day. The idea is to be able to walk clear out of the city. Um, to experiment, to test out how long a modern yojana is. The 500 yojanas, that's... I don't know what that... That'd be Montreal, maybe. Georgian Bay. Georgian Bay. Yeah. Anyways, 500 yojanas. And who knows how many kalpas that could take. <laughs> there must be a formula for equating yojanas and kalpas. Some kind of system at the back of recipe books. Um, okay, so there was, so you get the idea. There's hundreds, tens of hundreds, ten thousands. You can imagine a lot of people trying to get through this really bad, treacherous road that most humans would not go on. Okay, like a lot of roads in India, basically. <laughs> and uh, the road is 500 yojanas long. And as they're going along the road, they have a really great leader. And the leader starts to recognize they're getting tired and he's doing everything he can to motivate them to keep going. Like saying, sit with your eyes open. <laughs> and nothing's working. And so eventually, he can see that people are wanting to turn back. They're wanting to quit. But he's saying, but this road has great treasure at the end of it. You can't quit. And they're starting to get more and more tired and grumpy like men who haven't eaten. And their blood sugar's all out of whack. Have you ever seen this before? And um, he says, okay, well, there is a great city here. And so he conjures up a beautiful city, a phantom city with beds. They don't know it's a phantom city. He just conjures up a city on the path. Oh, turn right here. And there's a city, and they turn right, and there's a city. And it has great beds and really nice hotels and, who knows, maybe brothels and McDonald's and various other things. And they all rest there for the night, 
And in the morning, he wakes up and he says, this city that I've conjured up is a phantom city. I only conjured it up so you could have some rest so that you could keep going. And in the commentary, it said that the phantom city is the illusion of the peace of nirvana. So there's this road, right? This really bad road. And the road is your life, right? You start on this practice and your your life looks like ahead of you. Have you ever had this experience? You know, you look ahead and you see your life is a really bad road in a really bad neighborhood, and you don't really have the skill uh, to make it through. You need somebody to help guide you, a mentor, an apprentice, and friends. Tens of thousands in this case. And they're going down this road together, and they get exhausted. So, the phantom city is a metaphor, the Buddha is suggesting, for the peace of nirvana. In other words, the Buddha is saying, Remember when I taught you that the goal of practice is the peace that comes with nirvana? Well, that was just a phantom city. And really, the road is showing you this reality. The peace of nirvana is not this reality, but I had to teach you that so that you would get motivated uh, to keep going. Right? Most people start out because they hear that meditation has stress reduction, right? And then when they keep going, they realize, oh, and it also has nirvana. So that keeps them going for a while. They start signing up for 10-day retreats and three-month retreats, and then they you know, become a meditation teacher, and then they get robes and so on. And, um, and then the Buddha says, well, no. The peace of nirvana, that, that was just a skillful means for you to have a place where you can imagine you can rest. And maybe at some level, we also do get some rest there, right? I think we all need a kind of story to hang on to about where this is going. And maybe for some people, it's totally um, uninvestigated. Like maybe people haven't really looked at what it is they think they're working towards. I remember this teaching once uh, at U of T, a really large group of psychiatrists. And um, I asked the psychiatrist, can you get together in groups of four or five and talk together about what is the goal of what you're doing? I mean, what, how do you know when the person's healthy? What, what's the goal? And wow, people could not agree. It was like a fight broke out. And then when we ran around to try and describe it, it was just all over the place. That so many people hadn't really investigated, you know, what, what is health or what is sanity? What does it mean to be sane? What does that look like? And there was no agreement, really, which was kind of interesting, I thought. So this goal is leading to this, to this reality. When you sit, you sit with your eyes open because you're here. And maybe for some of us, we get frustrated by that because we don't want to be here. We want to be on a path that's getting us to the peace of nirvana. But maybe nirvana is not actually where the peace is found. 
if you imagine nirvana is a place or a state or a trait. The same is true in the yoga tradition. So in yoga, we uh, take a pilgrimage through a very rough road. And it's called the Sashumna Nadi, or the central axis of the body and the mind and the heart. It starts in the center of your pelvic floor, which is what we call Mulabandha, and it goes all the way up through the crown of the head. This is like the plumb line of your experience. And in yoga terminology, it's not uh, physical and it's not psychological. It's both. And it's neither. And in the practice, we can intuit it. We can intuit this central plumb line. And it's said that actually when you start to go into that plumb line, it is like a river that you follow. And it starts at this area called the Muladhara Chakra, which we studied in the last class. Mula means root, Dada means place, and Chakra is a wheel. And basically, wherever in your body you have diaphragms, you have chakras, which is kind of interesting. They're wheels, they're mandalas, they're diaphragms. And the root diaphragm is your pelvic floor. And the center of it is the center of your pelvic floor. And it has four lotus petals coming out of it. And each diaphragm has a different number of lotus petals, depending on how many nadis, how many rivulets or tributaries leave that particular chakra. And the chakras are like platforms where if you're meditating on the central axis, they're places where you can rest. It's a little bit like, has anybody here ever been to Switzerland or some places in British Columbia where you can go on long hikes? And there are these public huts where you can stop and you can rest and you leave it clean and the next morning you keep going. Right? So these are like chakras. So there are places when you're meditating where there are these kind of baselines or platforms or little huts where you can stop and meditate. And they're really interesting because over hundreds and hundreds of years, yogis have found that there are certain places where there are like energy centers. Just like, why would you build a hut on this part of the path? Well, maybe it has a good view and access to water and it's easy to keep clean, and it's protected from the rain, and the wind is not too strong. So the chakras are the same thing. But over time what happens is people have um, um, missed that the chakras are also phantom cities. They're also phantom cities. They're lenses that you can use to see certain areas. And now we think, oh, the chakra is this real thing, and if we just get the right MRI, we can measure what emotions are there, you know. And yes, part of that is true, and it misses. And it misses the language of the chakras. Just like the piece of nirvana for neuroscientists is so fascinating right now. Everybody's measuring it. And one of the big problems with MRIs is that the neuroscientists at, uh, in University of Madison, Wisconsin, they hook people up, you know, and they hook up their brain, and they start watching what the brain is doing. First of all, thinking that the brain is here, but that's another issue that they've dealt with already. But the other is that just because you can see 
what's happening in a certain cortex doesn't mean you can ever know what someone's thinking. No matter how many colors you see, you can't ever see the thought outside of somebody, which is really kind of interesting. And um, this is not a critique of neuroscience because they recognize this already. <laughs> but you can see how it, it you can see how it's so easy to take these ideas and not see them as phantom cities. So I just wanted to read. This is from a new book by one of my teachers, Richard Freeman. You should you should run out and buy this. <coughs> Many of the explanations of the qualities of breath and the nadis in Indian texts are filled with rich imagery, like you would find in Greek mythology. If you contemplate these images, so like the chakras or the sushuna nadi or kundalini, you might find that they stimulate within you feelings associated with energy flow through the nadis that the images represent. Of course, it might not happen, especially if you really want it to happen. (laughs) But you can always experiment to see if there's any truth to the idea of an image stimulating physical feelings. As human beings, we sometimes become so excited about our theories, our blueprints, our conceptual systems, that we superimpose our concepts onto the real data with which we are presented. This makes sense? You should never take anyone's word for theories like this, that the channels of the breath represent the sun or the moon, that they're masculine or feminine, or that they even are channels of breathing within the body. Instead, consider all of these constructs as an invitation to explore for yourself. It's kind of nice. He goes on for three pages and basically takes apart the whole notion of kundalini. How people, how he really goes after this. How people are waiting for their kundalini experience as a kind of tingling up the spine or something to blow the roof off. (laughs) And it's missing how, yes, those are some of the symptoms of what happens, uh, physical symptoms, when attention comes into the central axis. But that's not kundalini. The kundalini is a metaphor pointing towards a much longer road with a much brighter treasure which isn't about a particular feeling. And I think so many of us in our life have come across um, phantom cities. Well, I, when I was at Passover, uh, this, this, I couldn't believe at Passover, I opened the book and I just can read Hebrew. You know, I can sing it, I can read it, I have no idea what it means, but I can read it and I can sing it, and it was, so it's probably a good that I never knew what it meant, or I would never be singing it. Uh, I would never sing, you know, that I'm chosen and so on, but um, at the same time, uh, it feels so good to sing with my family, and I started having a lot of memories this week about when I was young, maybe about uh, six or seven years old, I used to love learning Hebrew uh, at synagogue and uh, going up in front of a desk like this in a room like this with the cantor and learning how to sing. And I really, really love this. And um, I was remembering all this, you know. And then at a certain point around being 13 years old, 
recognizing that I don't want to have anything to do with this anymore. Because that's when I started to understand what it was like, what the stories were actually about that I was learning. And I didn't jive with them anymore. And I didn't have a good teacher to explain maybe their uh, metaphors. So I walked away from it. But you could say maybe that the Hebrew and the chanting was a phantom city. It was much needed. You shouldn't disparage this. And some of us, maybe we recognize in our life, oh, something was a phantom city to get me to a certain point. And then we want to exclude it. We want to make it go away. As opposed to seeing how it brought us to a certain place. Being able to read Hebrew, for example. So, I've said a lot and we've covered a lot. But what I would like to do is just a little, uh, have a little discussion together. And what I want you to do is I want you to find a partner. And we're not going to do any intense partner exercise, I promise. Those of you who are eyeing the door. Um, But what I want you to do is I just want you to give an example. Think of an example where you were going along a path. And you were heading towards something that you thought was a real goal. That was worth striving for. And then when you got there, you realize that that's not actually it. That was just a phantom city. And it was a helpful construct you were given, but wasn't really the truth. And that there was a brighter jewel still. And I want you to think of an example from your life, and I want you to share it with somebody. But we're going to do this a little different. Okay. So, uh, at Passover, in the Seder, it said that everything you do should be done in the reclining position. Okay? And if you've ever had my mother's cooking, you would know why. Um, but basically, what I want to do is I want to do this in the reclining position. So, what I'd like to do... Um, can you, you want to demonstrate with me? Sure. I, I just want you to lie like, as if you're about to put your head on a pillow. not too close and I just want you to share it like this horizontally and uh, you know you can have a leg up and um, so you're really relaxed and maybe you might share something that you wouldn't share if you were upright and trying to really be a good yogi because that's also a phantom city. Okay? So find a partner that, you know, if you know somebody, pick them. If you don't know them, that's okay. And so, so again, just to be clear, here's what I want you to share. is just sometime, wait, wait before you start. Sometime in your life where you've been going down a path that's many yojanas. And you've been doing it for many kalpas. You have a lot invested in it. And it's real. And you get there, and you realize this was just a phantom city. This is not really um, a goal. This is just what I needed to get to here. But really, there's something uh, much brighter that's worth continuing for. And sometimes that's a painful, really painful time.
Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.